0: A warm Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Awfully glad that we're getting this time together, you and me. I can't wait. Got a great show. Rob Blue. he's usually my Tuesday guest, but uh, he is um, not with us today. But he has appointed Hans von Spakovsky to be uh, sitting in for him today. And I cannot wait to talk to Hans. I've heard him before and I've read his stuff and he's brilliant. You're going to love him. And believe me, I've rehearsed that name more than once. And I hopefully I've got it right. But uh, we're going to then be joined by Dr. Ann Bradley, and it's going to be a great first hour. So that's all ahead. But um, I would like to bring on uh, Hans. He's uh, a manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We get him right from the Heritage Foundation, and he's on our studio line right now. Hans, Welcome.
1: Well, Bill, thanks for having me. I, I will, I'll do my best to sub for Rob Bluey, but, uh, you know, he's a great guy, so uh, I'll, I'll do what I can to measure up to him.
0: No, he is a great guy. We we love Rob around here, and uh, my listeners do, too. But tell me uh, your last name. What uh, What is that? What is that last name? Well, a typical name for somebody born and raised in Alabama, does <laughs> <you think? laughs> I like you already, Hans. Well, I'm—,
1: I'm, I'm I'm um, first generation. My father was uh, Russian. My mother was German. They, uh, they immigrated here in 1951. They actually met in a refugee camp oh, wow. uh, in Europe after the end of the Second World War.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. And then uh, how many in your family?
1: Uh, they had five kids. So um, I've got two brothers and two sisters. And uh, since since they arrived here, our family has been... Uh, spreading out throughout the country.
0: Oh, fantastic. And you live where? Do you live in Washington, D.C.? Uh,
1: you know, I work in downtown D.C. Well, I used to work in downtown D.C. Yeah. <laughs> until COVID-19. But I live in Vienna, Virginia, which is um, a small town about 15 miles out of uh, Washington.
0: Nice. All right. A uh, hot topic is the, the risks of mail-in voting, and I would love to hear your perspective right. on that, Hans.
1: Look, there's two pro- there's two big problems
0: with uh, mail-in
1: voting. I mean, look, nobody disputes that we need absentee ballots for people who are too sick or too disabled to catch up to the polls, or particularly for our overseas military uh, personnel and, and and diplomats, you know, who can't be in their polling places on, on election day. But this move to switch to an all-mail election, in other words, an election where there aren't any polling places open, instead mm. uh, everyone is sent. An absentee ballot in the mail, which sent back, is dangerous for for like I said for two reasons. The first is, um, look, we maintain a database, at the Heritage Foundation, that is a sampling of proven election fraud cases from across the country. So it's just a sampling; it's not a comprehensive list. Well, the largest number of cases of any one type of election fraud, in there are absentee ballot fraud cases, and that's because these are the only ballots that are voted outside the supervision of election officials and outside the observation of poll watchers plus uh, bill you know this you know electioneering is prohibited in every state in other words candidates can't show up at, at your polling place and say hey you better vote for me right but but that's not there's no such prohibition on them showing up at your home and pressuring you or trying to coerce you or intimidate you into voting a particular way and that's why The absentee ballot fraud cases that I've studied uh, and written about are cases where, you know, in many cases, the ballots are uh, stolen, altered, forged, or voters are coerced and pressured to vote a particular way. Um, I mean, that's one problem. But look, the other big problem is that you are basically handing over. Uh, the election process, to the U.S. Postal Service. Yes. Okay? And, the, and the problem with that is, is uh, we actually did, a, uh, I actually did a piece for Fox News, Christian Adams and I, who's another good friend of mine, where we went through these uh, official reports filed with the U.S. Congress by the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Most people, I'm sure, have never heard of the EAC. But look, every two years, they file a report with Congress on the last federal election and all the data they've collected from the state. Listen, in the last four federal elections, 2.7 million absentee or mail-in ballots were misdelivered. 1.3 million were rejected. In other words, uh, voters got them, filled them out, sent them back to election officials. Election officials rejected them because they didn't comply with you know, state, state legal requirements, so they didn't get voted. And over 28 million... Uh, are labeled as unknown. Mm. In other words, uh, they don't know what happened to them. Election officials put them in the mail to voters who requested them and then never heard another word about them. Now, maybe the voters who requested them decided they didn't want to vote after all. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, maybe they tried to mail them back and they didn't get there. The The, the, the problem of misdelivery of ballots is a real issue, and so is the very high Rejection rate. And the reason for that is look, if you go into your polling place and there's a problem, you know, maybe you're not on the registration list when you should be, there's an election official there who can try to remedy the problem. There's an election official there who can answer any questions you may have. There's no election official in people's home. And if you don't fill out all the paperwork correctly, when you mail back your absentee ballot, it's going to get rejected. You know, there's a huge lawsuit going on right now. You may have read about this in New York. New York had their primary June 23rd. Um, in New York City, one in five ballots was rejected by election officials for not complying with the law, for signatures not matching. That means 20 percent of voters were disenfranchised in that election. That, that, that is an unacceptably high rate. But that's true with absentee ballots whenever they're voted. They always have a higher rejection rate than, than votes
0: cast in person. Hans, one thing you just have said a couple of times is you've referred to election officials. And I'm realizing, too, just right. how important that is. This is a very serious business, and it's not something you just drop in the mail unless you have done an absentee um, ballot where you go and and make your case that you need to get your ballot in advance and then you send it in. But this sounds like it would be uh, there would be enormous delays in the election results. Is that a fair fair assessment?
1: Yes. And in fact, again, uh, just go back again to the, the New York primary. New York primary was held June 23rd. Okay. Election officials there did everything they could to encourage people to vote by mail. They had a gigantic increase in absentee ballots they only, I think, last week finished counting the ballots. It took them six weeks, six weeks to do it. And the results are in dispute. There's litigation going on over the results and the huge rejection rate. Now, think think about this. The turnout in primaries, as you know, is almost always much lower Mm -hmm. than the turnout in the general election. If it took New York six weeks to count the results in their primary and they they have a, the same kind of huge increase in in absentee or mail-in ballots in november how long do you think it's going to take them to count that wow and and think about that happening all over the country and realize this right the the, the elections at the beginning of november basically we've got november and december two months and then january 20th is inauguration day that's a little about two and a half months Hmm. to uh, count the ballots and determine who has won. Do do you know what happens if the election outcome hasn't been determined on January 20th? I don't know. On Inauguration Day? I don't know. Well, well, there's a federal statute uh, that Congress has passed, uh, according to their power in the Constitution to do so, and it says that the Speaker of the U.S. House becomes the acting president if the outcome of the presidential election has not been determined. Wow. <laughs> so speak, Speaker Nancy Pelosi would become the acting president until the election outcome is resolved.
0: I don't even know how to respond to that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I told that to some people, and they said, oh, my goodness, I'm now going to have nightmares uh, 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 about that. Um, but but my point is, is that, uh, look, states, There's no way that states or the U.S. Postal Service will be able to handle a huge increase in um, uh, ballots being cast by mail uh, by November. It's just not practical for them to be able to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Hans, how come you almost never hear journalists say there's no uh, widespread voter fraud? Are they trying to convince us that there's no such thing?
1: Yes. You remember, they used to say, well, there's no fraud at all. Yeah. And then now they're saying, well, there's no widespread fraud. Well, one of the reasons for that is that, uh, uh, like I said, I got tired of hearing that there's no fraud um, comment. And that's why we started our database at the Heritage Foundation. Our, Our database is made up of proven election fraud cases from across the country. It is not a comprehensive list. It's just a sampling of cases. And we just added six more cases to it yesterday. So we're up to 1,296 cases. Um, and those are just – look, I'm not going to tell you that there's widespread fraud. I, I don't think there's widespread fraud. But there's enough fraud that we need to be concerned about it. And the the easier you make it to commit fraud, the more fraud you're going gonna to get. And and like I said, those cases are just the tip of the iceberg. I know of—personally know of many other potential cases of fraud where prosecutors refuse to investigate or do anything about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I just had a listener ask, uh, does Hans—did he study Al Franken's senatorial election?
1: Well, in fact, I wrote a whole— Chapter about that. Uh, John Fund and I actually published a book on voter fraud, voter and election fraud, several years ago, and we have a a whole chapter devoted to that. In fact, let's talk about that case just for a minute. Remember, that was a case where I think on election day, Norm Coleman, the um, incumbent, was declared the winner by like 700 votes out of 2.9 million. But then there was eight months of litigation, and in the end, the election was overturned. Al Franken was declared the winner by, I think, about 300 votes. Well, after the election was over, a grassroots organization in Minnesota started uh, comparing state correction records to the voter, uh, the, to the election, and they discovered that 1,200 felons who had not yet recovered their right to vote had voted in the election. That's four times wow. the margin of victory in that election.
0: Wow. That's significant.
1: Well, yeah, it, it is. Um, and uh, by the way, there's another study that was out a couple of years ago about the problem of non-citizen voting. And one of the problems we have in this country is, you know, it's a it's a felony under state and federal law for somebody who's not a citizen to register and vote. But election officials uniformly don't do anything to to check or verify citizenship when you register to vote. And and I know of numerous cases of non-citizens who have registered and voted in elections all over the country. And just a couple of years ago, there was a study done by some professors based on survey data in which they concluded that in that same election, 2008, um, non-citizens all over the country voted in that election. I forget what the exact percentage was, but it was a high enough percentage that if that was true for Minnesota, then also more non-citizens voted in the election than the margin of final margin of victory between mm-hmm. norm coleman and al franken
0: wow hans i have a feeling you're always this interesting even though this is just your first time on my show <laughs> let me take a little break well, I'll,
1: have to, I'll have to i'll have to live up to that all
0: right i'll take a little break we'll be back with more of hans von Spakowski in just a minute show my guest is Hans von Spakovsky he's got a very long resume I would read it but it's got a lot of big words in it probably couldn't pronounce some of them so I'm just going to go right back to Hans so Hans as I look at this uh the mail the mail-in voting uh you know what are some of the the things that voters are going to be forced to deal with I mean it's um there's going to be some huge problems
1: well yeah and uh, again I I, I give you a real example. Um, the District of Columbia had its primary some weeks ago, and they, election officials there, um, did everything they could to encourage people to vote by mail, by absentee mm-hmm. ballot, instead of voting in person. And based on their encouragement of uh, people to do that. <laughs> they decided to close down their normal number of polling places from 100 to only 20.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, the, the problem was that uh, by Election Day, thousands of voters in the District of Columbia had not gotten the absentee ballots they had requested. Oh, wow. They had not been delivered by the US Postal Service. So they went to vote in person and because election officials had very unwisely uh, radically reduced the number of polling places, there were huge, long lines of people to vote. Mm-hmm. And if if election officials around the country follow that same thing, we're gonna have that same problem. And what needs to happen and what should happen is, um, election officials should keep as many regular polling places open as possible as they have in prior elections. Agree. And look, we'll be able to vote safely as long as they put in place the health safety protocols that have been uh, recommended by health experts, you know, line spacing, wearing of masks, use of use of disposable uh, materials like disposable pens to mark ballots, uh, we know it can be safely done because, in fact, Wisconsin held its primary April 7th in the midst of all of this. Um, yeah, lots of people voted by absentee ballot, but several 100,000 people voted in person in their polling places. Wisconsin put all of these health safety protocols in place in their polling places. And the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, recently issued a report on Wisconsin. And they said there was no spike in COVID-19 infections because of the election.
0: Mm -hmm. So Hans, maybe you could just uh, give our listeners a little idea as to what both sides are thinking I mean, there's obviously a a battle over this idea. What does one side believe and what does the other side uh, believe on mail-in voting? Because I think it seems like the Democrats are for it.
1: They are, and they've been really pushing uh, this idea that we need to switch to an all-mail election. Um, There's there's two things about that. Uh, If you look at If you look at both the litigation they have filed and if you look at the bills that Nancy Pelosi tried to get through Congress to supposedly deal with the COVID-19 crisis, you find something very interesting, which is that they are trying to take advantage of COVID-19 to push in place all these election law changes they want that have absolutely nothing to do with the the health crisis. And the best example of this I can give you is – uh, her bill, for example, would have outlawed all voter ID laws around the country. Sure. Now, what has that got to do with COVID nineteen? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Her bill, her bill would have overridden state bans on vote harvesting and made vote harvesting legal everywhere. If people don't know what that means, it basically it means this: Look, in every state where you can vote with an absentee ballot, you can either mail it back or you or a member of your family can hand deliver it to election officials, you know, before election day. Mm -hmm. But vote harvesting means that a state has legalized that anybody, any third party can show up at your front door and pick up your ballot to deliver. So what does that mean? It means candidates, campaign staffers, party activists, and political guns for hire can deliver your ballot. Well, can you think of a faster way of spreading COVID-19 than to legalize vote harvesting, which means that strangers can go from door to door to door in your neighborhood, asking you for your ballot so they can deliver it again. That has nothing whatsoever to do with um, uh, the COVID-19 crisis. And yet they're trying to push this uh, to override state laws on, on this issue. And, Look, the other problem with all-male elections, and you find this, is that the people who are targeted by those who try to pressure voters to vote for their candidates are most often people who live in poor neighborhoods, the elderly, those who are most vulnerable to that kind of coercion and pressure, and that kind of thing is easier to commit with all-male elections. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And I would love for you, Hans, to talk about just the importance of election integrity, because it's, uh, this is going to be a very significant election.
1: Well, you know, it's hard for us to maintain our democratic republic if we can't be confident that the person who gets the most votes actually wins the election and that individuals who shouldn't be voting, like non-citizens uh, or people who are dead, uh, are actually being are able to cast votes, and that's why election integrity is so important. Look, I, I just published a paper for the Heritage Foundation where I, I write studies for them on four elections that were stolen through uh, massive and widespread absentee ballot fraud, and and they and the elections fortunately were this was caught and they were fortunately overturned, and this ranges from. A Miami's uh, a, a race, a, a mayor's race in Miami, Florida, to a congressional race just two years ago in North Carolina, to uh, an election in Indiana and to another election in California. Um, so the idea that this kind of thing doesn't happen, it can't affect the election, I, it's election, it's just not true. And we've got to take the steps required to, yeah, on the one hand, make sure that everybody who's eligible is able to vote. But the second half of that, which folks on the left just want to ignore, is making sure that that eligible person's vote is not stolen by someone fraudulently casting a a vote.
0: You know, when you go into a voting booth and you fill out your ballot and you Run it through the machine, and you watch it happen. You feel like you you've done your civic duty, and you have confidence right. for the most part of confidence that your vote's been cast and everything is secure. That's the only way it feels good to me
1: yeah no i I agree with that and look that's really important because uh, particularly you know in most places these days, people vote using opti scan ballots right that's a paper ballot you you fill in the bubble next to the candidate. Right. And then when you go put it in the ballot box, it goes to a computer scanner, which counts it. I I think most people would much rather uh, see themselves putting that ballot in the ballot box than handing it over to a stranger who promises they'll deliver it or putting it in a mailbox where maybe it'll get delivered in time, maybe it won't, maybe it won't get stolen out of of your mailbox. But on the other hand, look, how many of your listeners— uh, have had happen to them what happened to me just last weekend, if you can believe it, when my neighbor from down the street came to my front door and said, Uh, Hans, I I got a letter for you. <laughs> you know, it was miss it was misdelivered.
0: Right. Right. Uh
1: and and here's the, the final question I would put to folks who think, Oh yeah, we've to switch to all mail elections, is is this Bill, if you won the Powerball Lottery, <laughs> would you put your ticket in the mail? No,
0: I wouldn't No. Of course not. You
1: would want to hand-deliver it, and that's, I think, the way most people feel about
0: their ballot. Hans, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for being with me today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hans von Spakovsky has been my guest right from the Heritage Foundation. Take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley is going to be joining me from the Institute for Faith, Works, and Economics. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Money matters are always on people's minds. The economy is a big one. It's going to be a big factor in the election. My go-to person is always Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley from the, Faith, the Institute of Faith, Works, and Economics. She uh, agreed to come on the show today. Ann, welcome.
3: Hi. It's nice to be back.
0: Yeah. Thank you for doing the show. I hope I didn't confuse you when I texted you uh, about coming on today. So thank you. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, yeah, I love like, it. I love it. Just, just like being me here. to
0: confuse people. All right, and how is the U.S. economy doing? Let me start with a big, broad question.
3: Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting times, which I don't think needs to be said out loud, but just as a reminder. Um, you know, I think that there are reasons to be optimistic about the future in terms of, you know, getting out of um, these lockdowns and the economy recovering. So I think that speaks to the resilience of the American economy, which is always a good thing, right? That's that's very good news. Um, so, un, you know, unemployment is going down. Um, we're seeing some people being able to return to work. Um, and th- those are all uh, positive and optimistic signs. Where I get a little worried is that I think, especially when you small business owners, mm-hmm. this is where it really hits hard. Think about saving up, you know, with your family, making a family decision and saving up and buying a small business. Maybe you run it out of out your house or maybe right. you have a shop, right? And, you, and you're told you can't you can't really do business or you can only do partial business for maybe four months, maybe three months. Some of these businesses are not recovering. And uh, we, we expect that they, you know, they'll have to dissolve their, their business holdings and figure something else out, as we say. Um, but I think that there's a deep, financial and economic hit to that, Uh, both for the families and and employees that suffer through that. But I would say on a more macroeconomic level, the problem is that people now are worried. They are nervous about the future. So, for example, as we get through the summer and we start to think about what does the coronavirus look like in the fall, um, if we expect to go back into a state of lockdown because we expect cases to go up and hospitalizations to go up, then I think those very entrepreneurs are going to be nervous about reinvesting in another business right now. So that is going to stall innovation. That's going to stall economic growth. So we are certainly not out of the woods yet. Mm -hmm. Again, I like to lead with what's optimistic because I do think there's resiliency in the American economy. And I think we will get through this, but I think there's probably still some potentially darker days ahead that we're going to have to survive.
2: Yeah.
0: And can you explain what the core inflation rate is?
3: So when we think about inflation um there's you know there's different ways to think about it, but what economists are looking at is the the way that prices increase uh, over time, so the change in the cost of goods and services mm-hmm. um, and we measure that inflation over periods of time now there's kind of a natural rate of inflation um that we expect. And some of that is just there's, you know, for example, if you're looking at the price of milk in 1950 versus the price of milk today, we would want to adjust that for inflation. Why do we do that? Because uh, the, the currency is much more abundant today than it was in 1950. And so you have to adjust for the changing, you know, um, mo- money supply to understand. So there's a natural growth in inflation that's, that's not something we worry about. But when you see stark rates of inflation where, you know, kind of – In, um, you know, overnight or in a very short period of time, you're seeing the prices of goods and services as we constantly measure them as economists going up, then we start to get a little bit worried. Now, there's also deflation, too, so sectors of the economy can experience decrease in prices of goods and services, which, of course, is good for consumers but not necessarily good for the suppliers. So when we think about energy, right, and uh, vo- you know the volatility of oil prices and things like that, when oil prices go down, that would be deflation.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And those, those things are not necessarily permanent. Um, but we look at this inf- core inflation rate, as you mentioned, across different um, aspects of the economy. So we look at food and energy um, and these types of things. And it really helps us understand how people are doing because we have to adjudicate between the inflation rate and people's disposable income levels, if that makes sense. So we have to, it's not just about how much you make, it's about how much you make relative to how prices of the things you want to buy are changing.
0: Mm-hmm. And Anne, explain to me and my listeners how the feds are involved in all this because it seems like interest rates are super low right now for people buying homes and the housing market seems a little nuts right now in certain yeah, areas. I-
3: Absolutely, and I'm in one of those areas. It is is really amazing to see um, the housing market. Just is it's it's definitely a seller's market. in, in you know, I'm in, in the suburbs of Washington D.C. and Virginia, so um, there's a lot of transient movement in and out of the area. And I mm-hmm. think big cities and suburbs of big cities are experiencing that. So the Fed's role is really it's complicated, but so the Fed does the Federal Reserve does not directly control that core inflation rate that we talked about. So it's not something that is arbitrarily set by a bureaucratic agency. It's the movement in the changes of prices of things, right? So the housing market, the prices change in the food market the prices change. You know, in the energy market the prices change. The Federal Reserve, I think people sometimes mistakenly believe they're pulling those strings and they're deciding what the kind this kind of inflation rate is. What the Fed Federal Reserve is responsible for is lots of kind of internal money market interest rates that then impact The consumer interest rate. So you mentioned housing. The Federal Reserve does not control directly the interest rate that you pay when you get a loan for your home. Um, But their indirect actions do impact that rate. So it's kind of like one degree of separation removed. So the activities of the Federal Reserve certainly do matter. But when we talk about just buying and selling money, buying and selling treasury notes, things like this, I think what we're seeing with the Federal Reserve today is that they've taken a very um, aggressive policy of trying to make interest rates across the board very close to zero. And the problem with that is that it doesn't leave us a lot of tools in our toolkit in terms of monetary policy to do something if we might need to do something, if, if you will, in the future. So, you know, being able to tinker with that goes away when, you know, your interest rate is essentially zero. So I think that's where the Federal Reserve needs to take and has historically taken a very conservative um, approach, meaning slow to change, not volatile, um, very predictable, and very transparent um, and when we have a Federal Reserve that behaves like that, there's people have more confidence in in, in the investments that they're going to make in the economy. So all of those types of things are very much related. So I would say the Federal Reserve does not not the man behind the mirror. You know, they're right. not controlling everything, but they have very much an, a role to play. And so we have to care, you know, kind of about what they're doing. Um, and we you always want to look at central banks as. They should be conservative small c. And when mm-hmm. I say that I mean, you know, really open, transparent, slow to change. So if you compare the Federal Reserve in the United States to central banking policies in Venezuela, I picked a very extreme <laughs> those are very yeah. extreme examples, right? But it shows you what happens when central banks view themselves as very active participants in the economy and they change, you know, the the money supply overnight and then you get radical hyperinflation. And so we we. Those kind of consequences are very obvious to us. But even if we're not behaving like Venezuela, but the Federal Reserve starts to take a more active role um, using kind of monetary policy as a tool for fiscal policy. I think that's when we need to be worried.
0: Mm -hmm. And when the Federal Reserve makes decisions, is it reflected in things like the trade war with China or tension in the Middle East or just fears about what's going on with with the, the health of the global economy?
3: I think so, and this is why. The world kind of looks to the American economy to kind of, you know, to take the lead. Um, and so when, when our Federal Reserve does something, people are watching. And so to, to, to the extent that it, it matters for trade, it matters for foreign direct investment, I think very much so. Um, if, if the Federal Reserve t- starts, you know, kind of acting aggressively and making a lot of rapid changes, I think that that signals – a lack of confidence or that, you know, kind of they're trying to be more aggressively involved in, quote unquote, fixing the economy. And so that can have a really big impact on international consumer confidence. And so, for example, there's a lot of uh, international agents, whether they're government agencies, firms that make direct investments in the United States and frankly, buy our debt. And we need somebody to buy our debt or, else you know, we can't we can't just kind of Um, This is not just manna from heaven, if you will. So um, we won't have that ability to have other people buy our debt if they start losing confidence in either the American dollar, American central bank policy. And so, yes, I really do think that extends to our trade position abroad. Um, and things like that, and and so today the the American dollar is you know the the most beloved currency across the globe that people want to hold. That's mm. a good thing. That signals that there's confidence, you know, a good thing. in what we're doing. It's a very good thing. But that's not a guarantee. We don't we can't rest on that and say, well, it's going to be like that forever. But that's dependent on the behavior um, of those uh, of you know the Fed.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you explain why the stock market seems so unusually high in the midst of what's going on right now?
3: Well, keep in mind that the you know the stock market we always say you know we have and I'm certainly not a financial planner or financial advisor, but the stock market you want to take the long view.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, so, so there are people who certainly kind of do day trading, and it's kind of like being at the craps table, right? So you're hoping for this kind of small, quick win, and you can certainly make some of those small, quick wins, but when you're looking at the stock market, in particular in the American economy, you're looking at the the long play, which is you're making investments in firms. That's, that's what we're doing, right? We're making invest investments in American entrepreneurs and um, looking at what we expect them to do into the future. And so I I think that investors realize that I think if you've ever bought stocks, you realize, you know, I might get something like real quick and it will be. A nice short win but most of us invest in the stock market for the future for our retirement and so we are taking that long-term view i will say on the other hand though uh, the issue with the stock market is very much controlled by what's going on now so if you're a stock market watcher you know you see the highs and the lows and they could be day-to-day minute to minute and so you know i think your question is more to the short term what's you know Um, why is there confidence and what are people looking at, right? So I think there's a lot of things that can influence this. It's really interesting. I was teaching last semester at George Mason in the midst. Well, it was really right before the university shut down. And I had, it's so funny that you asked this because I had students asking me, and I think it might've been our last in-person class, is the coronavirus and the spread that kind of, it was just starting to kind of spread and people were kind of talking about, should we be, how worried should we be, you know? And my student said, is that worry factoring into the decline of the stock market? This is like back in early March.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And I said, yes. So you can get news about a virus and you have no idea. We had no idea five months ago where we'd be right now, but that can have an instant effect an instant negative effect right. on the stock market. You know, you could have people and, you know, uh, this is not meant to be political, but, you know, people watch the Democratic National Convention last night and if they loved what they heard and they think, oh, this is like we're going to get change in November and everything's going to be great, that just watching what somebody says on TV can have this kind of short term blip or it could move in the other direction. They're like, oh, these guys are terrible. Like, I'm, I'm losing confidence because I think they might win. So. It, it's really dependent on consumer expectations. And I, I think the stock market will be interesting to watch as we get closer to the election because this is a very you know, volatile, I guess is the right word, election, right? There's a, there's kind of no, nobody you're like, eh, about. People kind of either love them or they hate them. And so as we get closer, it will really be interesting to see how the stock market follows the election trends.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest, and I'm going to take a little break. When I come back, and I'd love for you to comment on the employment situation and the unemployment situation. We'll be back in 90 seconds. My very special guest is Dr. Anne Bradley, economist and professor, author, and she's uh, from also the Institute of Faith, Works, and Economics, TIFWE.org. So Anne, let's talk about unemployment and where that's headed, because if we don't have jobs, people don't feel good about themselves, and if they don't feel good about themselves, they can't feed their families, and then there's no hope, and then all of a sudden that creates all kinds of new problems.
3: Absolutely, and this kind of directly is related to the to the question that you just asked. So that you know, kind of the stock market hitting this record high, and we see that you know in the in July we added um, I think almost two million jobs um, to the U.S. economy. So this is again kind of this this burst of economic energy that's really important. So that people returning to work. Means people, there's more stores that are open, more services that are open, we're having more elective surgeries, people are getting their needs taken care of. And as you say, people are going back to work and so that they, they can take care of their families. So I think um, the, the fact that we continue to add jobs where we lost them in March and April is a really positive uh, sign. And so, you know, if you go back to April, it was almost a 15 percent unemployment rate. And that statistic alone probably means nothing. But when you think about the fact that in January it was like four point seven percent, that's a lot. Right. That's a huge jump in a short, short period of time. And the other thing I, I want us to keep in mind is that, you know, if you think about the Great Depression, there were structural problems within the economy that led to long lasting unemployment, took a long time to get out of this is not the same thing. And I think that should give us some hope. So these lockdowns were voluntary. I mean, in some cases, involuntary, right? But I mean, there was a combination of in some states, people were just on total lockdown. But even where people were on lockdown, we were making voluntary decisions to do less. You know, you did curbside grocery Mm -hmm. rather than go to the store. And, you know, you didn't eat out dinner as much and things like this. So, uh, you know, I think that what we are going through is not there was not something wrong with the economy in January that was just about to burst, but that rather this was an input, a policy imposition and a voluntary imposition to some extent. And we are now retracting some of those impositions. And so, again, I think this speaks to the resiliency of a lot of the American economy, which is that we're putting people back to, you know, I shouldn't say we because who's the we, but people are getting put back to work because their employers are calling them and saying, okay, well, I need more help now because I can actually be open or have regular hours. I can perform surgeries. I need the nurses and CNAs, all these types of things. So I'm, I'm, I feel justly really optimistic. Maybe that's the way I should put it um, is that if we can continue to make these gains Then we're going to, you know, will we revert back this year to that January unemployment rate? I'm not sure. I don't think anybody really knows. And, again, I think the real key question here is what is going to happen with this virus in the fall. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people, you know, I think there are scientists and epidemiologists, et cetera, who are very worried about a resurgence in colder weather. And so, you know, thinking about that and being cautious about how we go about our lives is going to be key for preventing more of these lockdowns. And, you know, pro- protecting jobs.
0: Yeah, that's um, and that's like a couple of weeks away when you say fall.
3: <laughs> yes, yes,
0: it's, it is. It's hard to believe, but yeah, it's just around the corner.
3: It's just around the corner. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So um, and how do you think the um, global economy is doing right now? I mean, I kind of have a sense that what the U.S. is doing, but what about the world?
3: So here, here's, I'm not sure there's, you know, there is a global economy, but when we say that, it's such an abstract idea. Uh,
0: I know. I, um, I have no business even asking that question, so I don't even know what I mean by no, that.
3: No, it's okay. But I think I know what you mean, which is kind of how is the world doing
2: yeah, exactly. in all
3: of this and, and what's going to happen? And, and, of course, nobody really knows the answer to what's going to happen, but I, I do think that what we're seeing is in certain European countries, people children are going back to school. And they're able to continue going back to school. That I think is a really good sign for the economy, for economic progress, for mm-hmm. confidence levels. Where I'm worried is about the countries, you know, we, we kind of used to call them developed versus developing economies, right? So kind of underdeveloped economies where there's still a significant portion of the uh, population that lives in poverty, um, even in abject poverty, which we define as under $2 a day. This is where I think we need to worry because. Um, As we've kind of tightened up international trade during the pandemic, you know, it's easy for kind of – and if you think of most people in the United States, what we're talking about is very wealthy people compared to the rest of the world, right? So if you take the global comparison, United States citizens are incredibly well off. And so think about how people suffer in the United States and then multiply that by some factor when you think about how people are suffering – you know, in Ghana oh, right. because we don't have the infrastructure. And now if the donations are drying up and oh. trade restrictions are imposed and we're not engaging in travel. And so their lifeline gets restricted. And so we need to return to normalcy as fast as possible as a humanitarian effort, not just as, cause we want to go shopping at the mall, but because this global trade is what connects us to each other and allows us to kind of support one another and grow our incomes mutually. And so that's where I really am worried about. I don't want those restrictions to be tightened. I want them to be, you know, uh, relaxed as soon as possible so the global economy can keep its momentum. And again, this is a way we care for the poor.
0: Yeah, most excellent point, Anne. And I know that when you work, you feel purposeful. And I just want to go back to, as believers in Christ, how, you know, the gift that that God gives us is this work that we can treat it. Every day we go to work is an act of worship to Him, and Mm. it does allow us to flourish, and flourishing people are are happy people.
3: Yes, and I really like the distinction you made. I think we use the word flourishing, we start starting to kind of in our culture overuse that word, because it just is this word that means I'm happy all the time, and I've got everything I want, and, and you're right to distinguish flourishing from happiness. I mean, you can flourish in times of sorrow, in times of pain, in times of fear and distress, and not know what your next move is going to be and not know how you're going to provide for your family, you can still—but it's because we love Jesus, right? And so Mm -hmm. we know He's sovereign, and we have hope for the future, which Scripture is very clear about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some ways, we want to satisfy those material needs, and we need to as soon as possible, but our hope is bigger than that. So I really think that distinction is so important.
0: Yeah, this is not really an an economist question, but it did pop up from our conversation from a listener who just texted in and said, why are we worried about fall flu and colds and illnesses with everyone distance and face masks and sanitizing everything? How do we get sick? I I don't understand that part.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, and I'm I'm certainly not a a scientist, so I'm not sure we fully understand how it spreads. You know, and I don't think we fully understand how it's going to end, but I think it's right. I mean, I think there are very low-cost ways for us to do our part, wear a mask, wash your hands, don't touch your face, use hand sanitizer. I mean, in some ways, those are very easy things to do. And if that's what it takes for us to start, you know, to help love our neighbor, let's do that. It's easy.
0: That part's really easy. Um, But we do have um, uh, an election coming up, and I know there's a lot of people— very divided, very polarized with our country right now, and that's to be expected. You know there's two sides to every uh, story, and I'm just wondering uh, I've heard things that the economy that the uh, the debt will will go sky high if one side wins, and I don't know if we can afford any more debt.
3: I don't think we can. um so I fully agree with you there. I think that this is an important election. Um, but here's the problem, and you and I have talked about this so often. Um, I think at the core, of what, regardless of what side of the political aisle you, you are on, I think the problem that we have is that we have unrealistic expectations about what the state can do for us. So to me, to, to the long-term fix to this problem is we've got to rethink our core values about government, about the market, about civil society, which I would say includes churches and nonprofits and philanthropy and culture and all these things, I always say that policy is downstream from culture. And Mm -hmm. it is, because especially in a kind of a constitutional setting, the government's going to give you what you say you want. (laughs) And so if you want big government, they're going to happily provide it for you, regardless of whether they call themselves Republicans or Democrats. And I know that's kind of a, it's a harsh thing to say, but it is a true thing to say. Government has grown consistently for 100 years, regardless of what, who held the White House and who held the Congress and things like this. So I think we need a return to an under a proper understanding of what we can ask and should ask our government to do, what should be left to the private sector, and what should be left to churches and to communities. Communities are really great at solving problems for, you know, that they, they identify in the community. So I think we kind of um, dismiss that as kind of antiquated thinking, but I, I don't think we should. I think there's a good reason to say we need to reclaim the role of those institutions. Um, but it's, you know, that's a hard thing to do. That's a cultural shift. That's not just a who's going to win in November kind of question. Right. You know, that's a much bigger, we got to get our values right. We got to get our priorities right. And if we don't, no matter who's in the White House, this is going to keep happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you face to face with students coming up this fall? I am. Oh, terrific. I
3: am. Yeah, I'm super excited. I did buy some face shields, which oh, I've good. never owned in my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm excited.
0: Well, that's great. And when does school start for you? Next week. Fantastic. Thank you for taking yeah. the time to do this. I know you got a lot of uh, oh. busyness in your life and young family and everything else, so I really appreciate you, Anne.
3: Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. Thank you. Dr. Anne Bradley has been my guest. You can always head over to tifwe.org to learn more about Anne. And also uh, buy one of her books. She's awesome. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Hour 2 is ahead. Pastor Brent Kuhlman from Murdoch, Nebraska, is going to be with me. And then my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington, is going to talk about a passage from Malachi. That's all ahead.